Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Song of Songs, or in your Bible, it may be called Song of Solomon. It goes by those two titles, Song of Songs. We're in a series of messages, as Pastor Wayne uh, mentioned, where we are going through the Bible, book by book, giving a summary of each of the books of the Bible to kind of get a sense of the landscape of Scripture and how these uh, books fit together. And today we come to the conclusion of the poetic books of the Old Testament in Song of Songs. And here's the key concept for today. Sexuality in marriage is designed by God as a gift to humanity. Song of Songs is the last book in the poetic books. Those are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. And Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, is an extended love poem. And so we begin by reading verses 1 and 2 of Song of Songs. It says, Solomon's Song of Songs, Beloved, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Now, you read the Song of Songs, and the very first impression that comes to your mind is this. What in the world is this doing in the Bible? That's the first impression. Some parts of the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon is positively racy. I heard of a pastor friend who was doing a wedding rehearsal with a couple that was getting married, and during the rehearsal, he happened to mention that he was going to quote some verses from the Song of Solomon, and the mother of the bride objected She said, I will not have you reading that in church. (laughs) And here's a little secret about Quail Lakes Baptist Church. Since I announced that I was doing a book-by-book synopsis series of each of the books of the Bible, this is the book you've asked most questions about out in the hallway as I'm greeting people. Are you going to skip Song of Solomon? What are you going to say when you get the Song of Solomon? Are you going to read Song of Solomon? (laughs) You know, you people are nervous. But the NIV NIV calls this the Song of Songs, and it's taken from the first section of the first verse. And in Hebrew, that is a superlative. Song of Songs means the greatest song, just like King of Kings means the greatest king. And Song of Songs is a lyric poem, a love song, but one that comes from a long-ago time in a faraway place. And as such, it is strange to our ears. Scholars call that historical distance. And the historical distance may make it hard for us to follow or to understand, even though the Song of Songs tells a love story. But there are times when that love story is interrupted by dream sequences. And there are times when it's interrupted by extended commentary about the the bodies of the lovers and their particular you know, features, and there, for lack of a better word. And there, and there are times when a chorus will speak called the Daughters of Jerusalem, or in the NIV, just friends. Now, tradition tells us that Song of Songs was written by, by Solomon, and that bears out with, with the first verse saying Solomon's Song of Songs, and the title could mean for Solomon, or it could mean about Solomon, But since, as Pastor Wayne has mentioned, we know that Solomon has a lot of practice with romance, right, and a lot of practice in writing, uh, I see no reason to doubt that this is 
his words to us. Solomon writes these words, and it's the story of him wooing a woman whose name we never learn, but she is the main character of the book. Most of the words of the Song of Songs are the words of the woman. The Bible, you see, is a book about God, but it's also a book about what God wants for his people. And here, we see what God wants for his people regarding human sexuality. And we learn that it is to be expressed in marriage between a man and a woman, and it unfolds in the account of this one couple's love. Here's the basic outline of the story. Solomon owns a country farm, probably a vineyard, in a place called Baal Haman. We are not sure where that place was, but most people guess that it was somewhere up north near the base of Mount Hermon. And once in a while, Solomon liked to take off the crown and put on the blue jeans and go work the farm, just like Ronald Reagan used to, you know, go up and work the ranch. And on Solomon's farm, he had tenant farmer families. And in one of those farmer families, there was a young woman simply referred to as the Shulamite woman, and they fall in love. He goes away for a while, and she has a bad dream that he is no longer wanting to be a part of her life, but, but he returns to her, and in chapter 3, we see a wedding procession take place, and now that young woman has a decision to make. Will she become part of Solomon's harem? You see, in chapter 6, we learn that at this point in his life, Solomon already has 60 wives and 80 concubines. And the question for her is, will she become part of the bunch? And she loves him so much that her answer is yes. And in the midst of all of this action of love, there is interspersed descriptions of the various body parts of each of the lovers. They're compared to honeycombs and pomegranates and goats and blossoms and fawns and gazelles and jewels and gold and all kinds of other stuff. But the, the book is a snapshot of how God intends sexuality to be perceived. He intends it to be a wonderful, breathtaking, intimate gift within marriage. So this book is a book about sexuality, but it is also a book about chastity outside of marriage. Because the Song of Songs makes it very clear that there is a context to sex. To have sex outside of marriage is like moving into a house that you don't own and you're not paying rent on, just squatting in a house that's not yours. It's a picture for what is meant to feel permanent and solid and safe, that is meant to have a sense of rootedness, but it is insecure and weak. God has intended sexuality be, to be inside this relationship of permanence and rootedness, to be a part of the glue that makes marriage permanent. Song of Songs demonstrates that. So it's a song about sexuality. It's a song about chastity outside of marriage, but it is also a song that is a statement against prudery. The Bible handles every subject very frankly including sexuality. The Song of Solomon proves to us that it is Satan's ploy in our culture to push sexuality either to excess or to embarrassment. If you're on either end of, that, of, that, uh, of those uh, extremes, you are falling play to Satan's ploy. 
But God has ordained marriage and sexuality within marriage between a man and a woman. And we know that that's the, the picture in Song of Songs because again and again as you read the book, there is a verse that repeats itself. It is an accountability verse that demonstrates that we must understand sexuality is in a context of marriage. And the accountability verse shows up first in chapter 2, verse 7. Now, I'm going to read you that verse from the New Living Translation. It says it this way, Promise me, O women of Jerusalem, by the swift gazelles and the deer of the wild, not to awaken love until the time is right. Now, I purposely am not reading that from the New International Translation, and the reason is because the New International Translation ends it by saying, do not awaken love until it so desires. That's a bad translation because it gives you the sense that whenever, you know, whenever the desire hits you, you know, have at it. But that's not what the verse is saying. That's the opposite of what the verse is saying. The verse is saying again and again, and it appears three times throughout the book, there is a context. There is a right time for sexuality when the time is proper. It's an important verse because it is repeated over again, the bride reminding herself about that and the last time reminding the women of Jerusalem that they too must know that sex is only to be set within marriage. Three different times that verse comes up. Now, some of you might be confused as you're listening to me right now because if you've ever heard a sermon on Song of Solomon, which I doubt that you have, if you've ever had it referred to, you probably have heard that it's really, even though it seems to be talking about human sexuality, what it's really talking about is, is a relationship between the Christian and our Heavenly Father or Jesus Christ. Very often, people will take Song of Songs to be an allegorical poem that talks about a spiritual relationship. Down through history, interpreters have not been too keen to take Song of Solomon at face value. But it is not an allegory. An allegory is a fictional story with a hidden message. The objects of an allegory represent something else. The story of the allegory itself is fiction, but the truths that they represent is, is truth. And so the message is true, but the story is not. The greatest example of uh, Christian allegory is Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress is a, a fictional story, but it, it, it gives us true concepts in the people that are in the story, like Mr. Christian or Evangelist worldly wise man, prudence and charity. It's an obvious allegory of the Christian life. But this is not an allegory. This is the affirmation of human sexuality within marriage. But it is more than that. It is an analogy. An analogy is a fact that is like other facts. So while this is about human love, there is an analogy inside the story. And that analogy is that the, the, the human love, the emotional connection between a man and a woman is mar in marriage is like the love that exists between the bride of Christ and Christ himself. Just as the human bride can say of her husband, I am his and he is mine, so the bride of Christ can say of Jesus, I am his and he is mine. 
But in a primary way, the book is about romance and marriage and human love. And it depicts that marriage and courtship are good gifts from God. It provides a balance to what we normally hear in church about human sexuality. Normally, when we talk about sexuality in church, we're reacting to the hyper-eroticism that is in our culture. And so normally you hear the word no. But in Song of Songs, you hear the word yes to human sexuality inside marriage. There's a positive, beautiful picture of marriage. It ought to be celebrated. God made us male and female, and he pronounced it good. So the story is of Solomon's love for the Shulamite woman. Is portrayed in this poetic expression of love. So let's move through the book together just to get a, a highlight in terms of uh, how the story is, is unfolding. The first section of the, of the story I'll call Rejoice in True Love. The first two chapters make up that first uh, section, and the, the poem includes headings. I, I trust that you're noticing that so that you know who's speaking in, in each, of the, each of the verses. And it's important for us to remember, if you're reading the NIV text, that the beloved is the woman and that the lover is Solomon. Okay, so let's read on. We're in the first couple of verses. Verse 3, we'll pick up where we are reading. It says, Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Now, she's talking about Solomon there, so we would call that aftershave. They call it perfume. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. Let's face it, uh, love poems and love letters abound. We express our loves to one another in poetry, and some are better than others. And you may be brilliant and not be able to write effective love poetry. For instance, I came across a love letter that Albert Einstein wrote, the woman he eventually married. And I want you to read this. It goes like this. If only you were with me. We understand so well each other's souls and also drinking coffee and eating sausages, <laughs> etc. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's, it's the etc. that makes it art, right? <laughs> etc. You can be brilliant and not be so gifted in terms of love poetry, but this is beautiful, imagery-filled poetry. And by the time you get to verse 6 of chapter 1, you note that even though throughout the book we're going to learn that this is a beautiful woman, she's self-conscious about her tan. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards, my own vineyard I have neglected. You see, what, what has happened is, is she's a, a member of the tenant farmer family. She's out in the fields, and she's developed what we might call a, a farmer tan, right? And she's sensitive about that because in this day and age, you know, if you're a bride, you want it to be as pale as possible. And it's not about color, it's about class. Because if you are, had a farmer tan, it means you're out there working in the fields, which means you are poor. 
And, and so she's sensitive about that, and she re, re, uh, reacts to that in terms of uh, her skin, but she is seen to be beautiful throughout the poem, and Solomon uh, constantly remarks about her beauty. By the time we get to verse 9 of chapter 1, we really sense the cultural distance between where Solomon is culturally and historically and where we are. Verse 9, now, now he is speaking, I liken you, my darling, to a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. That's meant to be flattery. But I wonder how it would go, ladies, if it's, a, it's an evening out, maybe your anniversary celebration, you come down the stairs and with a new dress and you say to your husband, how do I look? And he says, you look like a horse. <laughs> That's not going to work. But in this culture, at this time, a horse was considered to be the most beautiful of animals and so it was great flattery. By the time you get to chapter 2, the uh, interaction between them quickens and uh, uh, the, the, the girl describes the moment when the question is popped. In chapter 2, verse 10, my lover spoke and said to me, arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come with me. See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone, flowers appear on the earth, the season of singing has come, the cooing of doves is heard in our land, the fig trees form its early fruit. Blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. Boy, that's way better than my, when I proposed to Sylvia, that this is way better. But in any event, <laughs> I should have, should have consulted this. But you, you see, the season of love is upon us, and he pops the question, and, and um, she goes on in, in, uh, uh, in chapter 3 to have a dream. Chapter 3 is a dream sequence, and after she has heard that proposal, uh, she dreams that he's away from her and not to return, and in her dream, she goes out in the city at night, and the, the night watchman helps her uh, find uh, her lover, and he, she brings him back to the home, but not as her husband, just to keep him safe. And there again, in chapter 3, verse 5, we read the accountability verse. Promise me, O women of Jerusalem, by the swift gazelles and the deer of the wild, not to awaken love until the time is right. Well, as we move forward to the second section, chapter 3, 6 to 5, 1, I call that remember the wedding. Because in chapter 3, verse 6, we begin the description of the wedding processional and the, and the wedding party comes. And as we go into chapter 4, we get to listen in on the love talk between the two lovers now uh, married to one another. The wedding night is described. They describe one another. Your eyes are like doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Your lips are like scarlet ribbons. Your temples like pomegranates. You get the idea? Quite frankly, I'm not comfortable reading any more of the body parts, but that's what happens there. And she responds to his flattery by being open to his advances now that they're married. There's a bit of poetic license taken in, in chapter 5, verse 1, as the, the friends or the daughters of Jerusalem speak to the married couple. Eat, O friends, and drink your fill, O lovers. I don't think we're meant to imagine that they were actually there in the room that night, but, you know, the poetic license is there. But then what happens in, in chapter 5, again, we see a dream sequence. 
It portrays her insecurity for the fact that, you know, now that her dreams are coming true, but maybe it's not really going to happen. Maybe she doesn't deserve it. And sometimes we feel insecure even in the midst of achieving. And in the dream, he comes to her, but she takes so long to get ready to come downstairs, but by the time she gets there, he is left. A little bit of reality inserted there. But it, so, so she goes out into the night once again searching for her lover, but this time the night watchman takes her to be a criminal, and she enlists the help of the daughters of Jerusalem to find her lover. But once again, she has to describe him. So how does she describe him? Well, his cheeks are like beds of spice, his lips like lilies, arms are rods of gold, legs pillar of marble. And with that to go on, they find him, and they bring him back. <laughs> They bring him back, and uh, here in chapter 6 is where we learn that Solomon already has a harem of women. In chapter 6, uh, verse 8, 60 queens, there may be an 80 concubines and virgins beyond number, but my dove, my perfect one, is unique, the only daughter of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. And you see that... Uh, Solomon says, yes, I have all these wives and concubines, but you're my favorite. And you're left to wonder how many other of these wives and concubines have heard that line. Because, you know, the Bible doesn't gloss over the failures or the foibles of the characters. The Bible does not endorse polygamy, but the Bible reports polygamy when it happens. And it happened in Solomon's life. By the time we get to chapter 8, verse 4, the woman is lying in the arms of her husband. And once again, there is the accountability verse. However, now she's speaking it to the daughters of Jerusalem, making sure that they understand that this sexual relationship that she has found such joy in with her husband is set within the context of marriage. And that's where it belongs. And so we're left finally with the place that we started. What in the world is this doing in the Bible? It reminds us that there is a proper place and a proper view for sexual love. It reminds us that human beings did not invent marriage, and we did not invent sexuality. Marriage and human sexuality was designed by God as a gift for humanity. He built it into a context, a structure, and that marriage structure is a symbol for the kind of love and commitment that those who are followers of Jesus have. It reminds us of the analogy. Our human marriages are meant to reflect our spiritual commitment to the Lord. So that in the culminating statement about husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul brings it forward. And he says, this is a profound mystery but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. The love that the wife has for her husband and the husband has for the wife is a picture, says Paul, for the relationship that we have with our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are to remember that he always loves us. The bridegroom loves the bride. And so we leave this poetic expression of human love with a confidence in spiritual love that Jesus has for us. We leave with a sense of knowing 
that we are secure, that Jesus knows us through and through, and he loves us completely. You, follower of Christ, you are loved. Would you stand with me for a closing prayer? Our time is gone. Maybe you're here today and there's a situation of need in your life, a question you're asking, or something that you uh, would just love to have a partner in prayer regarding. I want to mention, as we do each week, that down here by the Oregon, we have prayer counselors who would love to meet with you, to pray regarding your need and to be your partner in prayer. Slip forward and meet them there. But first, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us this portrayal of human love in your word. Thank you, Lord, that you're not afraid to talk about human sexuality, that you've given to it to us as a gift inside marriage. Lord, we, we pray for our society that has so abused this gift, and we pray that we may reflect your will and your desire well and so that uh, the pure gift that it is can be seen. Thank you, Jesus, that there is a lesson here, that you love us completely, that we as the bride of Christ find in you perfect love and security and hope. And Lord, we pray as we go our separate ways this morning that we reflect that hope to a hopeless world. Help us represent you well, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.